0: Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, actually, it's still morning, isn't it? Uh, chapter 5, today of Cor- Excuse me, not Corinthians, of Ecclesiastes. Uh, as with so much of the book of Ecclesiastes and, and Solomon and what he's doing and what he's saying to us, um, I put something on the board that hopefully... Kind of summarizes every time you start a new section of Ecclesiastes, you sort of have to affirm these two facts, affirm this, and then he says, but these are the things we deal with. So, if you don't mind, I'd like to review this again. As you know, the first two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing about living under the sun pretending if living if uh, there is no god. And then chapter 3 introduces god. And he affirms god's sovereignty and god's providence. The, the beginning of the chapter that it's really po- a, po- a poem, it's poetry. There is a time for everything under the, Remember that just refrain after refrain after refrain. Affirming that god is sovereign and his providence is real. Providence means he's involved. He's not an absentee landlord. He's involved in every aspect of life. So he affirms that. But yet, it is also true, and I hope you know what I mean by this statement, that we live in a fallen, broken world. God is sovereign, his providence is real, but yet there's something wrong with his world. And the Bible calls that what something that's wrong, sin, rebellion against God. So you have these two facts, and these facts are as true today in 2014 as they were in 3,000 uh, 3, years ago, roughly Solomon lived about 950 or so B.C., about 3,000 years ago. But given these two things, our task as people who know God, walk with God, and are serious about it is to worship Him, enjoy life, and do what we do in our lives as Lord. But we are not enjoying it. So you have this tension. He's sovereign, He's real, His providence is real, His involvement is real, yet we live in a fallen, broken world. There's a lot of things wrong. There's a lot of things that are really bad news. So what do we do? live with the smiley face upside down, live, live mournful to, uh, uh, lives that have no joy and no purpose. No, he keeps saying, in the midst of all this, to enjoy the life that God's given. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. Work hard. Enjoy what God has given you. And so today, what he does, in effect, assuming this, assuming this, and reminding us of this, but... These are some of the realities that are a part of this. And sometimes the way we try to intersect this with God's providence raises lots of questions. So before we dig into chapter, because this is really this stuff right here that I quickly outlined is what chapter 5 is all about. But before we get into that, let's let me see if you have questions. Do you understand what I'm trying to do here? I don't want to just jump into chapter five. I want to remind you what chapter three starts with. And it just keeps building. Solomon is reflecting on. If God is real and God lives and God's providence is real, I still see an awful lot of stuff that's a mess, which reflects the fallenness and brokenness of the world. So how do I live? Do I accommodate to all this fallenness or brokenness? Or do I seek a wise response, a God-honoring response, to the things I see in a fallen broken world? Are you with me? Do you understand? So what he's really doing is he's saying, these are some of the things that you're going to see in a fallen broken world that does not contradict God's sovereignty and providence. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But he still is going to end up calling, enjoy what God's given you. Enjoy the life He's given you. But make sure you are pursuing wisdom, discernment, and I'll use another word prudence. You may not understand. Everything God's doing. Maybe lots of questions. But still, pursue wisdom, discernment. Discernment is insight into the consequences of your choice. Be a prudent, wise person. So the first thing he does is he talks about something that we can do very flippantly and very easily, forgetting sometimes the consequences that go with them. But let let me stop before we get into chapter 5. Question. You have to keep reminding yourself of this big picture stuff of what Solomon's doing. As a matter of fact, to be very honest with you, this is the big picture stuff of Scripture. God is is in the process of dealing with this. And from the perspective of the 66 books of the Bible, he's dealing with this through Jesus. That's why he sent Christ. But he's still, because it's not done yet. Christ's work on the cross is done. He's resurrected. He's at the right hand of the Father. But it's not until he comes back again that everything's going to be made right. So our test is still the test that Solomon's saying there. Worship God, enjoy life, do all his glory. That's still the way we're supposed to look. But we're also called to be very wise. And that's what he is addressing now, particularly here. In Chapter Five, all right, Jane.
1: Is there any specific reference in Ecclesiastes to the wisdom discernment or are you are you seeing that sort of
0: in the text? Um, I'll tell you a better place to see words like wisdom, discernment, understanding, discretion, prudence is Proverbs, particularly the first nine chapters. He will use some of those words throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. What I often say is this. Proverbs gives us kind of the framework of some of these key words of what a wise life looks like. Ecclesiastes is fleshing it out in real world stuff. How am I wise, and this is the second thing we're going to, how am I wise when my government is taxing me oppressively as Solomon was taxing his people? How do I live in that? What's a wise response to that? What's a prudent, discerning response to that? That's what he's going to talk about. How do I, how do I respond to the fact, the fourth one we'll look at, how do I respond to the fact that in life, there's a lot of misfortune and unexpected disasters? How do I respond to that? What's a wise, discerning, prudent response to that? He tells us what it means in Proverbs. Here in Ecclesiastes, he explains kind of what does that lifestyle look like? Does that help? That's kind of the best way... I can think of to, to, to unpack a, an answer to a question that was a good one. All right. Let's look at the first one. By the first one, I mean the first part of Chapter 5, Brash Vowels. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And listen very carefully. I'm reading from the New American Standard. We're going to have to go back and take a careful look at this. If In your notes, I've tried to give you... Some guidelines as well. Guard your step as you go to the house of God, which would be the temple in the ancient world. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, where they do not know what they are. They do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort, and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools to pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow, than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, do not say in the presence of the messenger of God it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hand? Where in many dreams and many words there is emptiness, rather fear God. There's a lot there. If you take a look at your notes on page uh, nine, <clears throat> I'd like to uh, I'd like to read this again. Not trying to insult your intelligence, but as so often is the case with some of the things that Solomon writes, it's best to kind of get the big picture and then go back and take some of it apart bottom of page nine in the context of a worship service Solomon warns about making a rash vow to God we're in worship to listen to God not offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know they're wrong nor the speech of a fool verse one and verse three In fact, Solomon compares such rash vows to dreams, which are by nature futile and meaningless. If you make a vow to God, keep it. Do not allow such a vow to lead you into sin, nor should you try and convince the temple priest that it was a mistake, which is what he's talking about in verse 6. Rash vows can lead, rash vows where God can lead to his displeasure, anger which could lead to a destruction of the work of your hands. A lot there. Let's try to distill some of this down to the world you live in, the world I live in. What would be, an? Ex- can you think of an example of a rash vow? Do you know what I mean by rash? Okay, some of you are shaking your head. I think Jim shook his head. I'm not sure the rest of you <laughs> did. What What do we mean by rash, Jim? Okay, an impulsive, quick, not well-thought-through promise. Can you think of any example for that? Andrew? I don't, I don't know if
2: this qualifies as a kind of intentional, um, like, rat to it. but you hear a lot of people say things like, I swear to God I'm going to do that, you know? Mm-hmm. I, that, that phrase, I swear to God, I mean, it's taken as kind of more of a uh, 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 semantic sure, <laughs> sort sure. of thing. But... Um, words in it that would say mm-hmm. okay. a
0: bow and whether you're necessarily thinking about it that way or not you are making a promise to God okay Joel I think you had your hand up well I just
2: think of you know you hear stories of people that say whether it was an illness or an accident or whatever and they they say God if you can get me out of this all
0: yes do you guys want to say, yes I don't know if that's all well, fun is or if that's rash maybe they have thought fun it, well it could you know, be it
2: seems seems like it's
0: usually in an extreme situation. Okay. It certainly could be. God, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a bargain, a deal. Right. Right. God, you do this and this and this, then I'll do this. But you're making a vow. You're making a promise to God. I
3: think any time I would make a financial commitment, or any kind of a commitment, whether it be financial or a commitment to
1: somebody,
0: that I'm going to do something, I'm going to support something, and then I don't carry through. That's what I think. I of. Mm-hmm. i making a promise. Sure. When I was president, uh, you know, I was president 15 years, so I, I raised a lot of money and I had lots and lots of commitments from people. And uh, there are several pretty significant examples uh, of people who made a vow, they made a commitment, they're gonna pay a pledge, they never paid it. And I used to think about that. I used to think about that a lot because it had two Two important applications to me and to the, the school I led. One, you can you do not necessarily build your budget around pl- pledges that people make. And if they don't make the fulfillment of that pledge, you are going to experience some challenges, which we did a couple of times. But I used to think about that. You know, Lord, they made a pledge to us, but they made a pledge to you in that. They signed their name on a document, which they did. And so it was a rash, impulsive vow that they made. And I use that as because that was something that was real to me because I was in leadership at that time. Um, there are so many types of examples. So how does all of this that we've talked about here fit into that? Why is he bringing that up? Why is he talking about You know, it's, it's seven verses, but it all keeps coming back to what are you saying to God? Why are you saying what you're saying to God? How serious are you taking what you're saying to God? And when you say whatever you say to God, do you mean it? Is that an important issue for you and me today? In light of everything... That kind of is the background of the big picture framework of this. Why do you think he brings this up? <clears> he
3: <throat> don't like broken promises, you know. Yeah, in, in regards to the pledge, talking about the, the college, I, I, I kind of think maybe people would rationalize that they didn't make that vow to God. They made it. They made that pledge to you know the college. You know what I mean? but uh, in reality they
0: made it to God If you make a promise period how does God look at a promise it's, it's important to him Jesus says and then his brother James in his epistle says the same thing it's identical let your yes be yes and your no be no what do they mean by that Follow through.
3: Be responsible.
0: If you say you're going to do something, God is a part of that. He hears what you say. And He expects you to honor it. This is a, in a sense, um, in a sense, What's at stake here in the kind of vows we make? I'm thinking of a word, our personal what? Relationship. Okay, a relationship. certainly our personal relationships, relationship with other people. Integrity. I'm thinking of integrity. In a very real sense, our integrity is at stake. Our reputation. Now, let's take that one step further our reputation, our integrity is at stake. If it is clear to everyone that we belong to the Lord, we've made a commitment of faith, and you know, this side of the cross for you and me, it's a commitment of faith in Jesus Christ. Who else's integrity is at stake? God's integrity, because we represent him. We represent what he stands for. We represent who he is. My, I, I studied under a man, and he he would he would make these statements that would kind of shocker statements. But the more I thought about it, uh, over the years, more I thought he's really onto something. His name was Howard Hendricks. He he uh, went to be with Lord not so long ago. But he used to say to us, men, men, if you are not serious about your walk with Jesus Christ, would you do me a favor? Don't tell anyone you're a Christian. Hide it. That's what he used to. He would scream, hide it. Why did Hendricks say it that way? Well, in a sense, for the same reason Solomon's bringing it up here, if you are not going to follow through on what you believe and the consequences of what you believe, then please don't tell anybody that you represent Christ. Just hide it. Because in a very real sense, you're living as the people who've never made that commitment or love. Yeah, go right.
2: um, One thing that impressed me as I read through this chapter was that God wants a relationship with us. And if we are to take in all of this chapter 5, it's important that we understand who he is who we are.
0: I, I totally agree with that.
2: Because you can't have a relationship that's meaningful without understanding who he truly is and who we truly are. And our happiness, I think, is tied up, it seems, as he's talking about all of this. And understanding that relationship and having this embarked on this relationship, it's an eternal relationship that should build over the years of our life as Christians. Absolutely, and that's what he wants. He wants us to draw near. I think. I mean, this is what it.
0: Kept well, I said, from. absolutely I think that's very, very much a part of of the application of all this. It's very much a relationship with Him. And making promises to him is really serious business. It's, it's very, very serious business. And so let's, uh, let's think about that for just a, before we go to the next section, let's think about that for just a minute. Okay, what then does wisdom or discernment look like when it comes to making vows or making promises? Another way perhaps of saying vow. What's a wise, discerning approach to those things?
3: Someone who's not going to rush into a rash, but well, always going to make them think about taking on their body and seek counsel from others before you can make
0: that connection. Okay. So to counter, when I asked for a definition of rash, Jim used the word impulsive, which is a really good synonym for this. So... Um, is a six-year-old impulsive? By definition, they are. (laughs) Is an 11-year-old impulsive? A little better, but yeah. How about a 16-year-old? Yeah, still pretty impulsive. How about a 30-year-old? By then, you should be through that. I used to tell my kids, um, and I think I've mentioned that before but I used to tell them again and again and again every choice you make has a consequence I mean some of them are such innocuous choices that the consequences are almost immeasurable but every choice you make has a consequence and if you choose to stay up till 1am in the morning it's going to have a consequence the next day I mean wisdom is starting to understand that Wisdom is starting to understand that every choice I make has a consequence. And therefore, wisdom as a, an aspect of discernment is I'm starting to learn the consequences. And as Terry said, I'm, I'm learning. Wait, I, I, I'm not going to agree to that. I want to think through this a little more. I'll get back to you tomorrow. Is it all right to say that to God? You know, it really is.
3: Yeah, if he doesn't want you to make a right well, vow, you better talk about it. Exactly.
0: Solomon is saying to us, because this is true, but this also is true, and here's what God wants you to do. It matters very much to him, the kind of vow and promise you make to people. Because you're going to take an oath of allegiance to someone or something including an oath of allegiance to God, don't treat that in a flippant manner. And I think you would agree with me. At least I suspect you would agree with me. There are many, 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 many foolish 50-year-olds running around. I didn't say 70 because I'm getting too close to that. (laughs) In a sense that, you know, when it comes to wisdom, they haven't grown up yet. They're living like a fifteen-year-old. Solomon is saying, given everything I have been teaching, your integrity and your relationship with God is somewhat governed by the way you take a vow or an oath or make a promise to him. And although he's directly talking about to God, he's going to say in other parts, and it's very much in the Proverbs, boy, don't make a promise to someone if you don't intend to keep it. If you sign your name on the bottom of a page, God expects you to honor that. All right? Jim? One of the most
1: convicting areas for me in that courtyard is somebody shares something with you, mm. and I'll say, I'll pray for
0: you.
1: And I've gotten the Today, or something mm. like that, something that I, I know that I can fulfill and
0: doesn't imply sort of, mm. kind of ongoing, routine. forever and ever kind of. <laughs> yeah, because I know that I can. Exactly. I probably yeah. well, certainly won't. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate you saying it. My wife t- taught me that because uh, as you. I probably get more people. Would you pray for me? I'm preaching somewhere. 77 people come up and ask me <laughs> to pray for them on something. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And I remember one time, Sandra, honey, I, I don't know how to handle those things. Because if I say to them, I'm sorry, I can't pray for you. You know, so she said, Why don't you say to them, for the rest of the day, as God brings your name to my mind, I will pray for you? So I'm making a promise, but it's very limited, it's not ongoing. You out, and I'd like that, that I, I Peggy taught me that same thing in a sense that's an area where we often don't take that very seriously but when somebody comes to you with a prayer need that's serious to them I mean that's really serious to them or they wouldn't be talking to you about
2: it yeah, I had- our
0: response to that is I think it's like a vow it's certainly a promise what are you what are the limitations what does wisdom and discernment look like there for you
2: um, one time, uh, there was a situation uh, that a person was very sick suddenly, and uh, m- my wife called. Uh, she called three people to ask for prayer, and and they went right to prayer mm. right then. Mm. And uh, she said she really appreciated that uh, because it wasn't playtime; it was real time sincere about it. and, um, and sometimes that, that's helpful. Let's just pray about it right now because if they're bringing it up in their minds, I is—I is, mm-hmm. mean you correct me Jim, if they're bringing it up in their mind right then maybe then is the time just people around you, it doesn't matter just have a prayer right then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean I would encourage people to mm-hmm. do that because I think it's real. And then you don't have to remember it. <laughs> you know, I'll get back to
0: you. And pray sure. Sometimes. Sometimes. I Over over the years, or are many, many, many times where I've just prayed with someone over the phone. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I've said this. I'm not sure I could commit to praying to you, any, but I'll pray for you right now. Let's pray right over the phone. Or like, I, like Peggy has suggested to me, that every time the Lord brings your name to my mind, I'll pray for you. And that's just, it's realistic. And yet it's... Uh, I think it's a God-honoring way to respond to a need like that. So,
3: I got the question. Yeah. This last phrase here, which could lead to the destruction of the work of your hands? That's the end of it. If you break your vow, mm-hmm. it do not allow a vow to lead you in a sin. And rash vows before God and lead to His displeasure and/or His anger, which could lead to the destruction of the work of your hands.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I I think all Solomon is saying there is sometimes, um, if you make a promise and you don't keep that promise, it could actually come back and hurt you. Maybe not physically, but I mean, for example. you, you, you know, the work of your hands, your work. It could have a detrimental detrimental effect on your work or the workplace or your relationship with somebody in the workplace, your relationship with somebody in the church. I think that's part of what, the it's the consequence of that.
3: A relationship to yeah. somebody in your, you know, one of your parishers. Yeah. Uh, or in our case, let somebody... Not show up for an appointment that you might have
0: with the, exactly. with the customer. Mm-hmm. You know. from, from your perspective, at the point you make that commitment, promise, vow, or whatever, that's an unintended consequence. You don't foresee that, right. but that's a consequence. Okay, good. Got that clarified. Let's go to the second one. This, this is really fascinating from my perspective because Solomon certainly is including himself as someone who oppressed and extorted. It's very short, verse 8 and 9, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, so in the province, he's talking about a political entity, okay? Do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Uh, Again, that's kind of an odd way to put it, but it's a proverb. Here Solomon describes, I'm reading from the notes, here Solomon describes the oppressive taxes, fees, and extortion that can result from officials at all levels of government society. In fact, we should not be surprised at such things. Verse 8, someone at each level of the hierarchy takes his share, including the king. Solomon's government was no exception. He honestly admitted this. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us and history tells us, Solomon's government, he ruled for a long time, was one of the most oppressive of all governments in ancient Israel. He taxed the people into poverty. Why? Because of his massive building program. He virtually bankrupted the country. And when he handed over a rule to his son Rehoboam, the country was virtually bankrupt, which is amazing because Solomon's supposed to be the wisest man that ever lived. In the ancient world, in the ancient world, which was a highly structured, m- great hierarchy, everybody took their share at every level. Now, in the United States of America, we don't struggle with that, do we? That was a cynical question. <laughs> Not quite, maybe, to the degree of Solomon. Solomon. But did you see that one statement that sort of shocks you? We shouldn't be shocked at the sight of this. Why? Because of number two. Because of this. Don't expect people. Don't expect people in the province, in government, to necessarily be people of integrity, honesty, forthrightness, and efficient. They're going to get as much as they can. So what do you do? Does he say, organize a rebellion? <coughs> no, not necessarily. He, he will come back at the end of this chapter too. Worship God, enjoy life, enjoy the fruits of your labor, enjoy all that God has given to you, because you're not going to make everything right. So let's apply this to our lives. Can we apply this to our lives? How should we apply this to our lives? Or does this have absolutely no application to us today in 2014? That's us go until you skip this part. <laughs> okay, but how do we? And there are multiple ways to apply this. And I thought I was thinking about this as I was driving here today because this is this is an area where we perhaps gripe and complain the most. I mean, I it, it almost doesn't matter who's in office at the local level, the state level, or the national level. These are the kinds of things that people complain about. When I was president, I traveled a lot, and when I would be in Central Kansas or up in South Dakota or something like that, go into the local restaurant in these small rural communities, and you know who's there, don't you? It's all the farmers of the community, and they're having coffee before they go out and do their work, and those conversations were always real positive, always affirming, always always covering all the positives of life. <laughs> Okay. In, the, in the 15 years I did that, I never had those kinds of conversations. Positive, affirming, I mean, these, and a lot of these guys are believers. Uh, some of the most, I mean, vitriolic comments about government and the Chicago Board of Trade, I you mean, know, all these things. That, so how do we apply this? How do we think about this? Is this important for us today? For those in authority over us, that wisdom would be a good wisdom. Yeah, that would be a wise way to respond. Because although it is, in these verses, focusing on this, this is still true. Um, how do you deal as a Christian, as someone who knows and loves the Lord, how do you deal with the injustice? Uh, that sometimes comes with a system like this. How do you deal with the corruption? Because in a sense, what he's really talking about here is a really corrupt regime. So how do you deal with that as a Christian?
2: You let them see an alternative, that you live.
0: Okay. Certainly how we live. Um, How you live, does that mean you pay the taxes, even if it's a corrupt regime? Remember what Jesus said. Pay your taxes. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's a, that's who, I wish he wouldn't have said that, actually. That doesn't seem right to me that the Lord would say that. And when he uttered those words, Caesar, I mean, you know, the, the Roman government was you know, ruled by fear, Highly organized, but very corrupt. The Tax collectors were assigned a, a certain amount that they were to collect that goes to Rome. And most of them, how did they make their money? They didn't get a salary. How'd they make their money? By charging a much higher amount. And what'd they do with the difference between what was owed to Rome and what they're collecting? That went in their pocket. It was a very corrupt regime. It was built on the premise of selfishness and expecting corrupt behavior. Solomon basically did the same thing. You're still not getting that, necessarily. What is the, why? I mean, you are, both Jim and uh, Joel and, and uh, what Fred said are, are correct, but let's go further, let's go deeper. How do we respond to this reality? Because this is a part of this. But how do we enjoy life given that? Well, for
1: me, I mean, I guess what I look at is the second word you got up there, which is sovereignty. In spite of what's going on, I have concluded that science its best what do you intend to and in spite of what I see going on around me I just have to believe that it's all moving towards something for, for purposes along the way and for an
0: ultimate purpose. Because he's sovereign, what are some assumptions you can make about corruption and evil in government and that's what he's talking about, where there is going to be so everybody car- taking their- it Okay, and they are accountable ultimately to him. Is it very possible that you will never see that accountability brought to bear in your lifetime? It is, it is possible.
1: But so so what do you do?
0: You hold on to that and believe God's going to make that right. Anything else? I
3: think, Jim, one of the things that go along with that is for me to learn to be...
0: What was that word? Content. I didn't hear it. Would you content. say it again? Content. Content. Okay, that's almost a foreign word in America. But okay, what does that mean to be content with what you have?
3: Accept it.
0: Accept it. Now we really have. We do have some things that we can be genuinely. You know. Christians don't complain so generally making righteous observations about that was supposed to be a joke but none of you got it okay but anyway um, but yet you know if you, if you travel much and you, you, know, you get in some other countries where you know you may be at a 34 37 percent what is the top now? 34 percent I forget what it is tax rate but you go to like Sweden it's like 75 percent or you go to, like, an African country where, you know, the, 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 the tribal leader is taking a little bit from you, plus the national government, like in Congo, taking a very, very significant part of it. So what does content look like there? Oh, my goodness, you have such a small amount actually materially left. What does Solomon say? Enjoy life. Enjoy what God's given you even if so many are taking it away. Partially because of what Jim said. God's going to make this right. And that is really, really hard. Really, really difficult for us. But you know, a person, and, and I, don't, I, I don't think this is outside the bounds of our understanding. A person who doesn't have very much materially understands that a great, a great deal more than often we who have an awful lot. God's going to make it right. And I'm really trusting in him. And what Terry said, that word content, that word content, that is a... The the United States of America, I mean, this is a really horribly broad stroke statement, but the United States of America basically does not know what contentment means. Really. And it's... I'm I'm trying to, I don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable in this particular section. But this, of all the things in this chapter, this really reflects number two. But it does not mean that we cannot enjoy life in the midst of that. Enjoy what God has given Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 I've known wealth and I've known poverty I have known health and no sickness I've known sickness and I and he lists all of the things that he went through but I've learned to be content in whatever state I'm in and that that in effect is what Solomon is Wanting us to come to as a conclusion and application of wisdom and discernment. And that is really not very easy to do that.
3: So, if we dwell on the wheel tax or the sewer tax and how, how upset we are about it, we will not be content. I mean, we just need to accept it for now and, and know that the Lord will take care of it at some point. Yes. And it's, it's none of our business.
0: Well, except there's one area, Witty, that we could add. You and I are privileged to live in a democratic republic where we can have a say in the policies and ordinances and laws that our government makes at all levels, and we can work to change that. But basically, you're correct. I mean, Mayor Statham announced yesterday the increased sewer tax. But you know why she's doing that, don't you? Because a number of years ago the United States Congress passed a mandate based on environmental laws of what has to happen in cities like ours. It was an unfunded mandate, and an unfunded mandate means the local government has to come up with the money.
3: But, on the other hand, we're dumping a lot of raw sewage in the Missouri River for downstream. That's right. We're all going to have cleaner water, and cleaner right. sewer. So. Yes,
0: I mean there are—you know—it's all of those things. It ultimately is a wise decision, but we accept it. All right, uh, this is way too um, convicting. So let's let's move on to an easier one, okay? Nobody got that no, one I'm easy. Boy, this is <laughs> all right. <laughs> that
3: was easy one.
0: Verse 10 through 12. I didn't know what to call this. So I used the term covet or covetousness. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners? except to look on. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. What is he talking about here? What is he talking about when he says he who loves money will not be satisfied with money? When he says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase, what advantage is it that the owners accept to look on? What's he saying there? That wasn't rhetorical. I mean, it was sort Everybody of hoping. Wanted, once I, asked, I think it was J.D. Rockefeller how
1: much more money he thought he needed. Just a little
0: bit. A little more. A little more. What, exactly, the opposite of contentment. Does wealth, does money, bring contentment? As a matter of fact, he seems to be arguing in these three verses that wealth brings more anxiety. Why? Okay, Andrew. have more
3: to lose.
0: You have more to lose. Mm-hmm. And why is that something you're anxious about? what does he uh, mean in verse 13 the sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep what does he mean by that Why doesn't the rich man has a full stomach sleep very well? Leading out the indigestion part of it, I mean, leaving that out, which may or may not. I don't think that's what Solomon's getting at. It's something else.
2: His preoccupation and absorption his acid structure.
0: And he doesn't sleep well because?
2: He thinks he could lose it and he wants to get more. Constantly thinking
0: about okay. building that. I, I don't know. That's, that's right. I mean that's that's right. I mean he's constantly obsessed with
2: more or, or worry about what
0: he does have. The obsession with getting more, worry with what he does have, fear that somebody's gonna steal it. I mean it's all of that. he doesn't explain all of it. It's just all of those things. Now is there such a thing as a wealthy man who's contented? Of course there is. Jesus said something really curious. It is much more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? He's got more of a battle than material
3: possessions.
0: Why? Because he has them. Be- the Because in that is his Southwest. and his security. His that's right. I mean, Jesus isn't saying that a rich man can never come to f- That's what I was saying. But it's much more difficult. Because a a wealthy person puts their security and value in their wealth. I don't really need God. There's a very wealthy man in this city. His son is a good friend of mine. And he said, um, you know, when we die, that's all there is. This absolutely terrified his son. Because if that's what he believes, what does that mean? His father's whole perspective of security and value and worth is attached to his wealth. And when he dies, that's it. Jim, do you
3: think that's the reason why the first world countries are becoming so lax in our faith versus
0: Well, I certainly think it has a great deal to do with it. I mean, it's, in one sense, a very complicated question, but I do think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, you—I don't know if the right way to put it—but you transfer all your sense of security, and sense of well-being, and and sense of of uh, betterment and everything to the state and to the. Entitlement societies and cultures and civilization we built, instead of uh, instead of to the Lord, you know. Yeah,
2: can, can
0: and so that it? that is a, it's a very dangerous. I had a professor one time who said I fear pro- I fear prosperity and wealth much more than I fear theological liberalism, which was an aston. It was an historical of theology class, and this is all he has been teaching for the last four weeks, and he makes that statement at the end. But but he was in a sense he was. He was saying something. It's not that that isn't important, but he's saying something that's really true because it can lull us into a complacency and an apathy.
2: Can can we say that same thing is true of people who are getting government subsidies and they're really counting on this money to come in, even though they're on the other end of the spectrum, that they could live in the same fear and concern and preoccupation rather than letting spiritual things in?
0: I, well, I think so, uh, you yeah. I mean, I don't know how else to answer that other than yes. I think the, I, I believe we all can fall into this uh, trap. Uh, this, is, this is a result of the last half of the 20th century in the United States. In Western Europe, it's la- the result of the last 120 years, but it's this proposition I look to government to take the risk out of living. That is that is really the bottom line of this whole approach. I want the state to take the risk out of living. Disasters, the government's got to take care of that. Retirement, the government's got to take care of that. Healthcare, the government's got to take care of that. Education, the government's got to take care of that. I mean, it's just you know, it, it, just almost anything, and. Not to absolve many, many corporations and businesses are are really dependent on either tax subsidies or direct handouts from the government. I mean, corporate welfare—that's a that's a left-wing phrase—but corporate welfare is a reality that we got. I mean, have to face some of that. Many, many companies and businesses are in existence because of the enormous subsidies or tax advantages they get from government. I was just reading where you saw it in the Sunday paper. You know, this, this crossroads development project's been going on now for I don't know how long. It's still not resolved. But if you read that very carefully, the only way that thing's going to get off the ground is what? To tax advantages and heavy government subsidy. There's no other way that thing's going to get off the ground. Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, so what's it doing? It's taking... See, so everybody expects that. There is just almost an entitlement mentality at every level of government, not just the person on welfare. A farmer, even. A far, you cannot farm today without farm subsidy. And, I'm, I'm, and I was leading, I led a, a Christian institution of higher education, but we were fully accredited by the Department of Education as well as by Regional Accreditation Association. Every, United, every, every college and university in the United States it supplies to, you, could, you would shut your doors if you didn't get Pell Grants and guaranteed student loans. They don't come to the school, they come to the student. But the student then pays his, his or her bills with that. You, could, you couldn't exist without that. Government is making higher education possible today. And that is, there's a price that comes with that then. Government starts inching its way into more and more things and that's, that's the price you pay that's what Solomon is getting at here and the approach that so many people have is, is their security their sense of well-being their identity is in their wealth
1: I can't help but think about Agar in Proverbs 30 mm. who said two things I ask of you do not refuse me before I die keep deception and lies far from me Give me neither poverty
0: nor
1: riches. Feed me with food as my
0: portion. I might not be full and deny you, and say, "Who is the Lord?" And I might not be in want. Mm-hmm. I think that is a terrific philosophy. It is. Life. It is. It's a balance there. There's a balance in life, and Lord, it's up to you to help me to maintain the balance. Don't give me too much. Don't give me too less. It's up to you. you know I think I have told you this story, but in Pollock's biography of Billy Graham, which is an early biography, but um, he was talking about the, I don't know if I've told you this, if I have, I apologize, but it's it's probably good to hear it again. But when Graham formed the BGEA, uh, Billy Graham Evangelist Association, some of the early members of the board were really well-known individuals throughout the country. And one of them was a very significant, wealthy individual from Boston, one of the original blue buds of Boston families. And he was interviewed. Pollock interviewed him for the book. And he asked him why he agreed to serve on this board of this new organization. which got And he answered the question. He said, well, you're a man of tremendous wealth. You come from a family that wealth goes back to the 19th century. And he said, well, I hear what you're saying. But I want to tell my dad taught me something. This is a profound statement. Our wealth is either an idol or it's a tool for God's kingdom. I've chosen to make it a tool for God's kingdom. Isn't that a great response? That's, a, that's an application of what, what Psalm 30 is telling us. God, whatever you give me is, from, is yours anyway. I want to see what you give me as a tool not as an idol. And, I mean, I'm not wealthy by any stretch, but Peggy and I have always looked at it that way, that what God gives us is a tool. So our goal every year is to increase our giving by 1%. So that what we get in God blessing us is a tool for his kingdom. It seems to me that that that's the antidote to the kind of anxiety that not, not I don't mean what I said, that's just one application, but what that BGA guy said, that it's either an idol or it's a tool. You gotta choose. And that gets back to what we said over there. That's wisdom. That's discernment. That's prudence. It's either a tool or it's an idol. There really isn't any in between there. That's really what it is. And a man who's very, very, or a woman or family or whatever, that's very, very wealthy can sleep very well at night if they see it as a tool. Because he's going to say later on in this proverb, the Lord gives, the Lord can also take away. Who said that? First, Job said that. When he had lost everything. God in his grace restored it all to Job. But Solomon is giving us that, that big-picture perspective, that affirms and how we look at a balanced approach to material things. Now, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, boy, that, there were very, very, very few people that had wealth. It was under 1%. <laughs> Today, you know, in America, we've democratized wealth. I mean, people even that aren't making six, seven figures a year, they're still prosperous and relatively wealthy compared to the rest of the world. These issues face all of us. Well, tomorrow, uh, strike that. Next Wednesday, um, if I can, if you want to come back, and I hope you will, we'll start with verse 13. And then we're going to move into chapter 6. And... Just keep pressing on Keeping the big picture of what Solomon's doing and getting it. This is, I hope this is okay. This stuff's getting at the rubber meets the road. This is where we live kind of stuff. And it can be a little bit convicting. It can be a little bit unsettling, but that's good. If you study God's word and never are unsettled, you're not studying it right. You <laughs> should be a little uncomfortable at times because this is God speaking to us all right i want to pray um and trust that you're having a good week here praise the lord for this weather just asking to continue it but i know that won't happen not because he wouldn't do it but part of the curse father we are grateful for the word of god we thank you for solomon's reflections on life these do pierce our hearts they do mine and i suspect these men as well um this is real world rubber meets the road kind of stuff and it's a little uncomfortable at times. We have to really sit back and think about it. But I appreciated the interaction and thinking of the guys here. Bless them richly, Lord. Uh, They're all over the board in terms of needs. Some of them still are raising young children. Some have their children grown and they're uh, looking at trying to influence grandchildren. Uh, Some of them have physical health issues. All of us have the spiritual needs that just go with living in a fallen, broken world. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for what uh, his finished work means to each one of us. My prayer is that everyone has appropriated that by faith to their lives. They're serious about walking with you and they're allowing that process of transformation to just go on. Thank you for your love for us and your consistency Uh, We can be inconsistent, we can fall, but you never are inconsistent. Mm -hmm. You're always consistent, and your love for us is absolutely certain. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We go with that certainty in our minds, bless us, use us, and as we try to pray each time we're together, help us to represent you well. In Christ's name, Amen. amen. See you next week.